0: Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. He says these, when he says these, he's referring to those he's already spoken of from verse 1 through 12, which are Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said these all died in faith. That is, they died in a state of faith, not having received the promises, the particular promises God gave to each, But having seen them afar off. So they saw that which was invisible. They saw the promises of God. And their response to seeing God's promise was that they were persuaded of them. In other words, God's promise, notice this, produced a persuasion in them. They didn't come to God with faith. They didn't come and release their faith upon God. Rather, first thing that happened was God spoke. God promised. And the promise itself created faith in them. So they were persuaded and embraced them. The natural result of being persuaded in what God says is to embrace it. That is to adopt it as guiding light and truth for your life. And they embraced it. And then they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. You see, those promises that God gave them all had to do with a vision that extended into the afterlife. Something that was not fulfilled completely in this life. And it had to do, as in Abraham's case, it said that Abraham looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God. So they were all looking for something beyond their tangible visible experience they had the faith in that unseen reality promised by God and so they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth that is that their the real content of their life the real essence of their life the meaning of their life was not found in the tangible and carnal here that would pass away but in the afterlife so faith is the substance and the only evidence. Faith was the substance and only evidence that they had of that thing that was promised. And you notice that none of those that are listed thus far were under the law. This was before the law. And so this faith that they exercised was before the Mosaic system. Now, in verse 17, he speaks of resurrection faith. We found that he started off with creation faith. And he's moved through and now he's dealing with resurrection faith. He said, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried. Now we're going to come to that a little more detail in a moment. But when he was tried, this is a key word in this walk of faith. It's the word tried. You see, faith reaches its highest quality when it's tried. Faith that is not tried is not tried a deep and abiding faith faith to be all that God wants it to be has to have an alternative like love has to have an alternative. Free will has to have an alternative. And so the tree of life had to have an alternative, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So faith needs an alternative and that alternative creates a trial. And so throughout the old Testament, if you were to take each of the stories and look at them, you see God speaking a promise. The promise creates faith. And rather than an immediate fulfillment of that promise, the rest of their life is one of trial. And the trial is directly related to the promise and the faith they hold. It's as if God gives them this wonderful gift. And then throughout their whole life, he challenges them to lose faith in that gift. And it's in this contest between the promise of God and the hope that's at the end and the carnal trial that attempts to take away that faith. That makes faith precious to God and causes the man to bring forth a good report and be heir of the righteousness which is by faith. So Abraham when he was tried. Uh, I'm reminded of James 1.3 said. Knowing this that the trying of your faith works patience. The trying of your faith works patience. And then in 1 Peter 1, 1.7. The trial of your faith. Being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. Though it be tried with fire. Might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ trial of faith. First uh, Peter 4:12 says, "Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you." In other words, that's par for this walk of faith. Is a trial upon that faith. God tests, purifies, burns the faith so that the stubble is burned away and only the purity of divine faith is left. The trial of your faith. Now, Resurrection faith we're talking about. By faith Abraham when he was tried offered up Isaac and he that received the promise. Notice first was the promise. He that received the promise offered up his only begotten son. In other words offering up his son was an opportunity to negate the promise. The promise was that through his son he would multiply a seed as the sand on the seashore. And now God says kill that only son whom you love through whom the promise is to be fulfilled. So God was challenging him. To completely wipe out the visible foundation for his faith. You see at one point Abraham didn't have that visible foundation. And then one day God gives him the visible seed of his faith. Which was the first son of many that would multiply as the sand on the seashore. And then just when Abraham is getting laid back and relaxed. in the confidence that he sees the fulfillment of his faith. God says now I want you to kill The evidence of your faith and all you'll have left, all the substance you're going to have, all the evidence you're going to have is me and the promise and the faith I placed in you. And Abraham obeyed God and prepared to offer his son as a sacrifice. Now, listen to what he said. Abraham was accounting, verse 19, accounting, reckoning, imputing, believing, accounting. That God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. In other words, Abraham, when he had faith in the promise of God, and he saw that God was saying, okay, kill this evidence of this promise. Abraham reasoned that if he killed that evidence, it would not change the promise. The promise was certain coming from God. So therefore, the only logical conclusion would be that God would have to raise that child from the dead. So Abraham went out to offer a sacrifice, believing God would raise him from the dead, from which it said he received him back from the dead as in a figure. Verse 20, he speaks of the confidence. Faith is confidence in the future. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. So they had confidence And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning up on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Now these descendants of Abraham all acted based on the faith that they had that had been passed down to them from the promise God gave to their father. In other words, God had promised their father of a city, which had foundation, whose builder and maker was God. God had promised their father, Abraham, that their seed would be multiplied as the sand on the seashore innumerable. So Abraham passed on that faith to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph, and each one of them blessed their sons. And that blessing had to do with the fulfillment of that promise. So in faith, the faith they received from their fathers they blessed their sons expecting these things to come about. And then Joseph, when he died in a strange land, having been promised that they were going to receive this promised land that Abraham walked through, having been removed from that and taken down to Egypt, and Joseph is dying and they are well entrenched and embedded in living in the Egyptian culture. And yet he believes that ancient promise that God gave to Abraham. A promise that had no visible fulfillment except a great number of Jews at that time, but not not an extraordinary, not like the sand on the seashore. But he believed God that they were going to inherit that land that Abraham had walked through, that land that God said was his and his descendants. So when he died, he said, be sure and take my bones and bury them back there when you go. In other words, that was a statement of faith, believing the promises of God. What was his evidence? His evidence was nothing more than the word and the commandment of God. You see, they didn't have any deed to that land. For them to get up and go back and claim the land from its inhabitants was, uh, to us, we look back and we understand how it occurred. But to them, it was a remote possibility apart from the word of God, but they believed it. That's the nature of faith. Now faith also delivers from fear of men by faith. Moses verse 23 by faith. Moses, when he was born was hid three months of his parents because they saw that he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandments. In other words, Moses parents disobeyed the government. They were under an umbrella authority and they folded it up and threw it away. They got up from under their umbrella, which was a false and a corrupted government. And they said, we will not obey this ungodly, unrighteous rule to kill our children. And so they took their child, placed him in a basket, floated him in the river and trusted him to God. It was an act of faith. They cast their little bread upon the waters. And so their bread came back as the potential Pharaoh of Egypt, a deliverer for God's people. And it's a sanctifying faith. Listen to this. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So this faith that Moses had imparted to him with what little contact he had with his mother who nursed him when he was young. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. So the faith Moses had was sanctifying, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of the reward. By faith, listen, he forsook Egypt, again, not fearing the wrath of the king. And then here he endured as seeing him who is invisible. You see the element of faith? Something was invisible. Something was promised. He believed that which he did not see. And the result was it sanctified him. Because he gave up the riches of Egypt. He gave up the fame and the power of being Pharaoh's daughter. And possibly uh, an heir to the throne in Egypt. And he cast all of that off as if it were bearing the reproach of Christ. Taking that upon him which the believers uh, there in the early church had. The reproach of Christ for preaching the gospel and walking by faith. So he took that upon himself, not fearing the wrath of the king and obeyed God and walked in righteousness and holiness. So faith is a sanctifying faith. And then faith in the blood, verse 28. Through faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So Moses and his, those who followed him had faith that the blood on the doorpost would deliver them from sin. What testimony did they have that they would be saved other than the word of God? And it caused them to act. Romans 3.25 says, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, faith in God's protection. Verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. So they had faith that God would protect them in their walk so much so that they walked down into the sea. And were delivered. Now, if you think about the actual stories and go back and and read them, where it speaks of these acts of faith and the deliverance that came, here it sounds like great and powerful and unmoving and unswaying people of faith. But if you go back and look, think about all the failures Abraham had in his walk of faith. Think about how he stumbled along and, and went into Hagar and tried to produce his own miracle. Think about the children of Israel standing there in faith wanting to kill Moses because he brought him out there to die. And think about the uncertainty that Moses had when he fell on his face and prayed to God and accused God and blamed God for getting him in this awful mess. And yet, when God looks at the overview of their life, God says, this is what they did by faith. Isn't God gracious? Isn't he good? I'm so glad he takes the overview and doesn't account on some of those nights of doubt. Some of those uh, moments of fear and frustration and complaint and doubting and even our makeshift religious efforts that have nothing to do with the walk of faith. But the end result is that they did step down into the sea. They were panic stricken, had nowhere else to go. God drove them into it. You know, die one way or die the other. And they fled down into the sea with those walls of water standing up on either side and made their way across, probably stumbling all over each other and screaming and crying and begging for mercy. And climbed out on the other side, again, panic-stricken, seeing the Egyptians come after them, again, blaming Moses. And God drowns the enemy and saves them. And they said, boy, I'm sure glad I had the faith for that, aren't you? And when we read the story, we see very little faith. But the end result was they got there on the other side. And that's the way our walk of faith is. It's not always so bold and daring. You know, you read these books about Andrew Murray and different ones in their acts and walks of faith and you say, well, I wish I had faith like that. And of course, they don't write about the weeks of torment and frustration and failed attempts that they went through and all they write about. And that's all I really want to hear about, I guess, is is that glorious victory they got finally in the end. You know, you can take a life where a man's lived 50 or 60 years and and you can take 20 or 30 miracles that he's seen where he's prayed and things have happened. You can put all that in a book and you think, man, we don't have faith like that anymore. Well, as, as puny as my life has been, I could give you 30 miracles. It would sound absolutely astounding. Anything from making it stop raining when I was preaching to to, to healing, to casting out devils, uh, miracles of supernatural deliverance and God speaking to me and telling me uh, words of knowledge and things that, I mean, just own and on. I could give you miracles that have occurred over a period of 45 years. And I probably don't have 45 miracles, but I'd have enough to go about the average of two years. But you cram all that together in 160 or 80 or 120-page book, you got this miraculous reading, you know, that just makes everybody else feel small when they read it. And if I ever write one, I'm, I'm going to write it so everybody feels small when they read it, you know. That's the way... Uh, that's the way you, these writers are. So when we take and read this summation here of faith, it seems like a pretty supernatural bunch. But when we go back and read their stories, we get down into the dark caves of doubt with them. And, and we go through the weeks and the months and sometimes the years of frustration before the deliverance finally comes. Now, he says faith in God's protection passed through the Red Sea and then a battle faith, a battle faith. Do you have battle faith? He says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. So Rahab was delivered uh, by faith. Now, if you went back and asked Rahab, Rahab, have you got faith in Jehovah God? She said, now, which one's that? <laughs> well, that's the God of these guys you let down and, and saved. Oh, oh, yeah, they're God. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, I hope. Yeah, they're good. Yeah, I'm this place is going to fall. It's going to perish. And I, she said, hang a cord out the window and you save me and my family. And I sure hope it works. Well, Rahab, you got to believe with all your heart if you have any doubt. What? They said, hang the cord out. There's anything about not doubting. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't standing up there with some blissful faith with no doubts whatsoever. Absolute confidence that, that she was believing with all her heart, soul, mind, and body. She just was desperate and hung that cord out like they said and was hoping that uh, they stuck with their word and they did. And she was saved by faith. And then uh, verse 32, here's the hall of fame. He says, what shall I say more for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and Samson, and Japheth and David and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith, just got to kind of sum it up, who through faith subdued kingdoms. They faced the enemy and overcame them. Subdued kingdoms. Folks, that was with a sword. That was with a hoe. That was with a saw where they sawed them asunder. That was a plow where they plowed them. They subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Samson stopped the mouths of lions. Daniel stopped the mouths of lions. There was no great display of faith there. But uh, when we read the story, you see Daniel in the lion's den, not saying, okay, you can put me in this lion's den, but I guarantee you I'll still be here tomorrow. There's no way God would let me these lions eat me because I've received the baptism of the Holy Ghost with evidence of speaking in tongues. And I'm speaking nothing but good here. Nothing but good. Something good is going to happen to me. You know, he didn't have that kind of faith. I mean, he was trusting God, but he couldn't boldly. He he couldn't have taken up an offering on his faith. Let's put it that way. And then he says, stop the mouth of lions, quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turn to flight the armies of the aliens. You say, boy, that's the kind of faith we need today. I mean, this is unfailing, unquenched faith that goes out and wins the victory. Where's that faith today? Women received their dead, raised to life again. Amen, that's right. We don't want to go to doctors. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, (laughs) just go back and read these stories to see what the nature of faith was. See, faith is not a past key to self-indulging miracles. It's not some kind of resource you have that you release to make your life better and whole and escape troubles and difficulties. When we say have faith in God, most people focus on the faith and not God. That is, they try to create the faith first and then bring it to God. They try to feel the faith. They try to stir up the faith. They try to speak the faith and then come to God with it and present it to him and expect him to respond to that faith. That is about as far off as doubt. So faith is not separate from God. It's not something you bring to the relationship and release upon God. It's not like bringing money to a transaction. It's nonsense to speak of releasing your faith. See, faith does not exist apart from the presence and the promise of God. It's the promise of God that stirs the faith to begin with. You can't inflate faith like a balloon and then carry it around with you. Norman Vincent Peale speaks of the power of positive thinking. My wife gets this little guidepost magazine. It's sickening, sweet to me. Once in a while I read an article, but I don't like them. This guidepost magazine speaks of, of faith that transcends the difficulties of life and, and elevates one and, into some place of, of peace and victory and repose. That's not Bible faith. That kind of faith a heathen or an atheist can have. An infidel can have that kind of faith. That's not the kind of faith that God speaks of. Now, faith is not a positive frame of mind that maintains a high morale. That's not, that's not faith. Faith may tremble, to be lowly in demeanor, but one thing makes it divine faith. It holds on to the promises of God. That's Bible faith. So, in preaching to you this sanctification by faith. I'm not asking you to have faith. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I'm not asking you to have faith. That God will help you overcome sin. The Bible says Hebrews 12 two, looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. You see what I'm expecting to happen. Is that the word of God itself. Will create faith in you. And that faith he creates in you. You will embrace. Because it is there. It's all over you. It's around you. It's about you. You are persuaded. And having been persuaded through the word of God. You will embrace it and confess. That I'm dead to sin. Alive unto God. And seated on the right hand of God. In the Lord Jesus Christ. You will confess. That I'm a blood-bought, spirit-filled child of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, free from sin, and able to walk in victory all the days of my life. You'll confess that. Not because you have faith that it's so, but because God says that it's so, and you simply believe God. Not because you never doubt it. Not because you walk with an unbroken record of positive uh, conviction in this regard. But simply because time and time again, the spirit of God brings you back to the words of God, which says, I am dead and my life is hid with Christ in God. You'll come back as Apostle Paul when you feel alive, when you act alive, when you don't appear to be free from sin. You'll come back to what the Apostle Paul said and you'll say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in that very confession, the Spirit of God will run all over you, flood you. And the power to overcome sin that came forth at the resurrection will move through you and deliver you from the lust that's even present at the moment that you're believing the promises of God. Amen, 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 amen. All right, now let's go to the other side of faith, verse thirty-six. Notice the word "others," verse thirty-six, and others. As if he's saying, "We've dealt with one side of the issue. Now let's deal with the other side. We dealt with this victorious crowd. Now there are others in this walk of faith than this group. There are others had trial of cruel mockings. Remember the word "try," trials, testing, temptations. We've talked about had trials. Of cruel mockings and scourgings. But where's their faith? Did- didn't they have faith? Didn't faith deliver them? Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. But but if they're in prison, didn't didn't Peter and John pray? Didn't-, didn't they pray for the apostles? Didn't they didn't they walk out of the jail? Didn't the angel shake the building, open the jail? Doesn't he do that every time? I mean, if you have faith, after all, you can't stay in prison. When the communists lock you up, can you? I mean, all it takes is just faith. And if you really believe, then the jail would open up. You'd get to walk out, wouldn't you? (laughs) Uh, Listen to this. Of imprisonments, they were stoned. That means they died. They were sawn asunder. That means they got a big saw and (laughs) started. Sawed the bones all the way through. Cast off the limbs one at a time. Cast off the legs and then. Before he died, sawed his head off. They were sawn asunder, were tempted. That means they locked them up in prison as communists have done where you have devout Christians. A bunch of men locked up in a prison cell and then they bring some prostitutes in to tempt them. Say why? Because they know these Christians treasure their virtue above everything else. So they tempt them. In moments of weakness, they tempt them. They offer them food or escape if they will turn on the others. They tell them if they'll urinate on a cross or on a Bible that they will be free or not be beaten. They tempt them. They tempt them with all the cunning and suffering and pain and temptation the devil can conceive. In 6,000 years of dark diabolical history, they perfect it to an art. And the devil is released and Christians are tempted As Christ was tempted, and it seems even more. They were tempted. They were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins because they didn't have anything better. And goatskins being destitute. That means they were without food, without a home, without a place to lay their head. They were destitute. But we've never seen the righteous begging bread, have we? What about faith? Won't faith give you a nice Home in suburbia. Won't faith give you a way to pay your insurance and help you with your retirement? Destitute, afflicted, tormented. Man, I thought thought faith was, was this thing that made life full of roses and took all the thorns out. Not Bible faith. Of whom the world was not worthy. My, that's God's response. God looks at those Christians dragging their torn feet, their cold, shivering bodies, their pneumonia laden children across the rock, seeking a place to sleep for the night, scouring for a lizard or something to eat. The world rejoices that the Christians are fleeing, that their faith won't deliver them. And God looks down and says, the world is not worthy. They're too good for the world. Amen. Why? Because by faith, they obtained a righteousness. By faith, they obtained a good report from God. You say, but why doesn't God deliver them? He is. Yeah. He's delivering them from carnality. He's delivering them from unbelief. He's delivering them from self-efficiency. He's delivering them from self, from the devil, from the world. He's setting them free as nobody's ever been free in the universe except God himself. Yeah. He's making them free to choose God, to live in righteousness regardless of the choices that fall around about them. These guys in prison, I preach this gospel of sanctification to them and it's so easy for them to believe it. I'm amazed when I hear them stand up and confess victory over sin because they're dead to sin and free. And sin has no power over them. These are guys that have queers sitting right beside them. Queers in their rooms, queers in their shower rooms, have porno magazines strewn all over the place are tempted to take drugs to get out of the pain and the suffering, whose wives write them and tell them they just shacked up with somebody else, whose kids say, I don't want to see you again, whose mama hadn't been to see them in 15 years. And they rejoice, and they say, for the first time in my life, I'm free. Amen. How do they do it? Well, the world is not worthy of some of these guys that are locked up. It's just not worthy. Church is not worthy of them. Amen. Amen. Of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. You see, that's not the dark hours of the church when these things have occurred. That's when the light has shined the brightest. Now, am I going to go out and seek it? Absolutely not. I'm going to make sure there's gas in my propane tank when winter comes. I'm going to make sure my air conditioner is cleaned out so it'll stay keep my office cool. I'm going to make sure there's food in the cupboard and I'm going to plant a crop and And I got a Geiger detector and a place to go if they drop bombs. And I've got some Pepto-Bismol and Advil in my cabinet at home. And if I get a bad infection, I'm going to take antibiotics. But I'm going to tell you what, when all that gets snatched away through no sacrifice of mine willingly. And when sickness and disease or persecution comes up on me. Then that same faith will deliver me as it did them. But I'm no fool to go out and create suffering and. Deprivation and tempt God by saying, my poor child is sick and about to die, but I'm just going to believe God will deliver him. What you'll do is bury your kid, most likely, as many have. <laughs> of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained, having obtained a good report. That's about the third time he said that in this chapter. Having obtained a good report. You see, that was God's object all along. Through faith received not the promise. There it is again. That's the essence of faith. Received not the promise. They didn't. God having provided some better thing for us. Now what's better than getting out of prison if you're locked up? What's better than getting fed if you're hungry? What's better than getting out of that cave if you're sick and tormented? What's better than escaping the saw if they're fixing to saw a limb off? What's better than a miracle to deliver you so you can go back to America and testify and take up offering? I mean, what is better than God's supernatural deliverance so you have a great testimony of your spirituality? What's better than that? What's better is dying in faith, having not received the promise, but having obtained a good report while you were tormented and tortured and chased and homeless and helpless. That's what's better. Having obtained some better thing for us. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good report. That's the summary, the first two verses of the entire chapter. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. In other words, none of us have been perfected yet. They are not perfected yet. We'll all be perfected at the same time and it will be preceded immediately by a shout, a trump, the voice of the archangel and the dead in Christ shall rise. and we'll all be perfected at the same time. No, God did not give us faith as a way of separating ourselves from the unbelieving Christians and demonstrating our boldness so that we would demonstrate the power and blessings of God and overcoming all the obstacles and rising up to wealth and fame and fortune and health and so forth in this life. No, God gave us faith. So when the testings come, we'll obtain a good report. Now, what we've been talking about so far here has just been the nature of faith, the nature of faith. Now, our subject is Sanctification by faith. Our subject is how to stop sinning. And we've started this off by saying the way that you stop sinning is by understanding the nature of faith because faith is going to be the element in which we overcome sin. Now, faith is not a temporary crutch. It's the original soil in which man was planted. When God created Adam, a man without faith in God is uprooted. God rooted Adam in an atmosphere of faith. A man without faith would be like a painting that lacked one of the primary colors. Man is made that faith should be essential to his nature. In fact, we hear from psychologists who say that faith is essential to mental health. People without faith are people of despair and despondency. See, there's a mystery in man. It's revealed in every religion, every philosophy. There is this longing and tendency to believe in something. It's expressed in every cult. It's expressed in heretical, modern, scientific cults. The very creative intellectual process that's human is one of faith. Whether it's science or inventions or planting a crop, Man is not content to live by the tangible, the physical, and the seeing. You leave him alone and his mind is going to wander to the unseen and he will become a believer in something. Faith is to rise above the animal and the carnal and to exist on a plane higher than sheer flesh. Now faith is the channel for that which is missing. It's not the reality. You see, guidepost treats faith as the reality. And much of modern Christianity treats faith as that to which we aspire. As if faith were some kind of metaphysical science. As if faith, and some of them have so much as said that, that faith is a law unto itself. So that faith is a natural element in human nature that if we release it, then wonderful things happen. They're treating faith as a science with laws that govern it. This modern Christian teaching based on principles, that if you learn these principles and apply them, then you'll overcome fear, you'll overcome hate, you'll overcome anger, you'll overcome your bitterness, you will rise up above your carnality, you'll overcome your flesh, you will become disciplined. That if you apply these principles to your life in a conscious way, then the the benefits of those principles will be realized in your experience. Folks, that's making Christianity into a science, a metaphysical science, which is what psychology is. It is they study the science of the human soul. And 99% of Christianity today has fallen back upon the science of psychology They don't call it that. They call it Bible principles, but it's nothing more than the science of psychology. And it does not need the Holy Spirit. They talk about the Holy Spirit. It does not need Jesus. They talk about Jesus. All it needs is a person to consciously, deliberately, carefully, humbly apply these principles to his life. And he improves. Does it work? Yes, it works. But it will not get you closer to Christ. It will not glorify God. And it stands in the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It hinders the gospel from being realized in your experience. All right. We're talking about sanctification by faith, not by religion. We're not talking about... You see, a lot of people teach that sanctification occurs when you dedicate yourself to God. I've heard many sermons say, present your body living sacrifice. They call on people to come down the aisle and surrender to God. Dedicate their life to God. Folks, that is unchristian. Has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God does not ask you to dedicate your carnal self to God. Some people think that you need to fight against sin, the devil, and the world. and So you, you get out there and you do battle with the flesh, with the devil, the world. No. Some say it's by separation. Separate yourself from the world. Walk in obedience. Some say it's by prayer. If you pray long enough, you pray hard enough, you pray sincerely enough, you'll overcome sin. No more than a Buddhist will, even if you're praying to Jesus Christ. Some say, well, it's meditation. If you meditate, everybody meditates. Nobody meditates more than a house painter because his job is brainless, and so all he's got to do. All, all he's got to do is keep moving in the same direction, either horizontally or vertically, you know. And once he gets going, it just, you know, dip, dip, wipe, dip, wipe. And he can think about anything then and meditate all day long. I know because I used to paint houses. And then some people say, well, it's scripture study. Study the Bible. Now, I can say this because I study the Bible more than you all. And scripture study is not the way to overcome sin. Uh, some people say, well, it's dying to yourself. You got to die to yourself. <laughs> Others say it's by baptism, the Holy Ghost, with evidence of speaking in tongues. I won't mention names, but uh, the history of that movement has testified that does not deliver from sin. Some say it's by Watchman Knee's normal Christian life approach that you're delivered from sin. I'm afraid not. Uh, there's there's nothing but failure and pride been produced by that. And then some uh, people say, well, it's the Baptist way. You just sin and keep confessing it, keep short accounts, and God's forgiven you and And keep plugging in there and come to church every Sunday and I'll whip on you for sinning and maybe you'll go back and do better this week. And and that does not deliver from sin either. Sanctification is by faith, the same faith that saves, and it is by faith alone with no works on man's part. Listen to this. It's not what you do for God that sanctifies you. Now, most of you agree with that, but how about this? It's not what God does through you that sanctifies you and so people spend this time being very intense about trying to get this uh, consciousness of the of the presence of God and and die to their own self will and and self motivation so that somehow God can rise to the surface and become dominant in their mind will and emotions folks it never works it just never has worked and then What is sanctification by faith? It's not what God does through you. It's what God did to you 2,000 years ago. It's not what's happening here and now. It's not what God can do in you now that sanctifies you. It's what he's already done to you 2,000 years ago. If faith, if faith for sanctification were in an ongoing process, none of us would ever pull it off. We couldn't keep the process going. If faith were in my abiding, as some people say, John 15, in Christ, this constant sense of abiding, that if I could abide moment by moment, then I would be sanctified. You need to go sit with a Buddhist a while. That's how you learn to get in that transcendental mental state. If it were abiding, I couldn't be sanctified. I couldn't be delivered from sin. But folks. Sanctification is based on what Jesus Christ did to you. You say, what did he do to me? Fill me with the Spirit? No. He killed you. Put you to death. Buried you. Raised you again. Ascended and set you on the right hand of God. That's what he did to you. You don't have to recreate that experience. You don't have to recapitulate that in your life. All you have to do is let the word of God create faith in you. And when you believe it. In fact, it's working before you believe it. It works just as it worked in the children of Israel who didn't believe anything. God was sanctifying them. Was he not not delivering them? Did he not set them apart? Did he not save them from the death angel, from the Pharaoh's army, from their complaints and their gripes? and, And God was even ready to kill them himself. And Moses prayed God out of it as Jesus must pray God out of killing us. And the end result was they got sanctified in him. They had to delay it 40 years, but they got there. And God sanctifies all his children. The wonderful thing about this is knowing this and understanding this, you can take a 40 year process and turn it into a 40 day process. You can take a 40 day process and turn it into a 40 minute process. You can be instantly sanctified by simply believing what God says. Now, there are four words that define the soil in which Christians grow. We've dealt with the first one, faith. We've dealt some with the second one, hope. Faith is the immediate awareness God stirs in us of his promises. Hope is the object of faith that we anticipate. As with Abraham, the hope was a multiplied seed, a city which had foundation. So our hope is the hope of a glorified body. The hope of deliverance from sin, the hope of being in God's presence, and the hope of being made righteous. And then the next word was tried. We dealt with that a little bit. Tried. That God tests and tries our our faith. And then the last word is patience. We've come across that word. We haven't emphasized it much. All four of these words give us a complete picture of this attitude of faith that we must have in the matter of sanctification. All right. Let's look at them quickly. Now, what is patience? You've heard of the patience of Job. Now, how would you define patience? Let me say this. Patience is not the personality trait of non-aggression or non-irritability. That's not patience. (laughs) Bible patience has nothing to do with that sweet mood and temperament we ought to have. And it's very pleasant when someone has it. And it's a wonderful state of mind, but that's not Bible patience. Just look up the word and read it. That's just something that people who don't have anything else to do pursue. It sure makes marriage better if you're patient, but it's not one of the virtues of the spirit as defined today. So James 5, 7 through 11 tells us what patience is. Listen to this, James 5, 7. By the way, if you look it up in a concordance, it becomes very clear. We can't look at all of them, but be patient. Therefore, brethren unto the coming of the Lord. Now, how do you be patient under the coming Lord? What he's saying is, don't quit the faith. Don't give up your hope. Don't fail to believe God. Be patient under the coming Lord. Behold, the husband waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it. He's talking about us waiting for the precious fruit of deliverance from sin. Until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. There it is again, verse 8. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. You see, our patience is in regard to enduring until the Lord comes back. Take my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy, which endure, endure in this world until the Lord comes. You have heard of the patience of Job, there it is, and have seen the end of the Lord. That the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercies. What's he saying? He's saying, hang in there, folks. Believe God. Don't give up the hope that you have because God is patient. He's pitiful. He's got tender mercies. He'll bear with you. He won't cast you off because you have a faltering faith. So be patient under the coming Lord. That's what Bible patience is. So Jesus said to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, 3, thou hast borne, hast patience for my namesake as labor and has not fainted. So he's not suddenly in the midst of this talking about this, singling out this one little temperament virtue. You've been patient. He's talking about the coming of the Lord. Romans 8, 24 and 25 says, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what did he yet hope for? You remember reading that passage? But if we hope for that, we see not. Listen, if we hope. For that we see not. What am I hoping for beside heaven? I'm hoping for deliverance from sin. I'm hoping for victory over sin. If we hope for that we see not. Then do we with patience. Wait for it. What you need. Saint. You need patience. To believe God. Concerning your deliverance from sin. And to continue to believe God. And don't be turned aside. By failure. Or by flesh. Or by lies. Or by false doctrine, or by the devil, or by temptation, you need patience. Because God is going to work this thing out in you. Romans 15, verse 4 and 5, for whatsoever things were written afore were written for our learning, that's what we just read in Hebrews, that we through patience and comfort of Scripture might have hope. You see how these are all tied together. These words, you see these words tied together: patience, trials, faith, Hope that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, that's because we're reading what the old saints did, what happened in the old times, through through the comfort of scripture and patience, we have hope. And the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded one toward another. I'm so glad that He is known as the God of patience. He is ready to give patience. That's something He provides. God of patience. Take the word "try." Psalm 11:4 says, "The Lord is in holy temple; the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous." Now that means he he tempts the righteous. He brings tribulation to the righteous. He sets difficulties and obstacles before the righteous. But the wicked, in him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. God doesn't even mess with the wicked. But he tries the Christians. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, brimstone, the tempest. Now James 1.3 again says, Knowing this, that, that, listen to it, Trying of your faith worketh patience. That is Trying, there's the word trying. Of your faith worketh patience. Now God gave me initial faith. And he didn't try it. it would just kind of peter out. But when God tries my faith, I've either got to give it up. Or increase it. It's not my doing. God increases my faith by delivering me when he's tried it. Now what God did to Abraham had the potential of destroying him then and there. Didn't it? When he said, you kill your only son. He could have said no. He could have run off. But instead, he responded to the trial correctly. And it resulted in an increase of his faith. And was meaningful in his son's life ever after so that he passed on that faith in his son. Why do you think his son believed him? I mean, why would his son believe God spoke to me before you were born? But when his son saw the ram in the thicket, he said, God provides. God provides. Trying of your faith works patience. Let patience, verse four, but let patience have her perfect work. What's the result of patience having her perfect, completed work? In other words, let patience give way to patience, give way to patience in anticipation of the hope, give way to patience based on faith in anticipation of the hope. Let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect, perfect and entire wanting nothing. In other words, your holiness will come out of this process. Your complete deliverance will come out of this faith, hope, process. And then verse 12 of James one says, blessed is the man that endureth temptation for when he is tried. That means that the temptation is a deliberate premeditated trial that God has sent. Why do you think he said in to the disciples, pray this way, deliver us from temptation? Why would you pray that? Because God does not always deliver you. He said to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now Peter can turn around and said, Lord, you told him to get lost, didn't you? He said, no, I told him he could have you. <laughs> but I'm going to pray for you that your faith won't fail Amen. while you're being tried. That's right. So the devil goes to God and says, I'd like to have Mike Pearl. And I say, oh God, please tell him no, you know, I'm, I'm yours, right? And he says, no, I said he could mess with you for a few days. But the end result of this be, your faith will be better in the end. And you'll get a good report out of this. And I say, well, Lord, you're going to have to make me patient so I can stay in there and hang in there. He said, that's all taken care of. I'm the God of patience. Amen. Amen. That's good. When he's tried, he shall receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Now, here, here's all these words together in a couple, three, four, five, six passages. As I look through it uh, all together. Faith, hope, tried and patience. Hebrews 11:1 one through 50. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. There's your faith and hope. In verse 17 in Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. Then Hebrews 6 spoke of it. Listen to Hebrews 6, 11, We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Hope takes you to the end. Verse 12. Be not slothful, but followers of them. Listen to this. Who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See those two words together? Those who through faith and patience Patience is that ongoing faith, that delivering faith, that faith that keeps and doesn't quit. Inherit the promises. In verse 14, blessing, I'll bless thee, multiplying, I'll multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured Abraham, he received the promises patiently endured. God was creating patience in Abraham. And then verse 18, by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope of Set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. So we flee to lay hold upon the refuge, knowing it's steadfast. Now, Romans 15, 4 and 3 says, and the God of patience and comfort. Romans 15, 13, the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. The God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Then in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 10 Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. You see, we are been resurrected, begotten again. We've been brought back from the dead and placed in a lively hope. That means a hope that's living and active and moving and generating. It's a lively hope, not a dead hope, not an ineffectual hope. It's a hope that affects its own end as we hold it. 1 Peter 1, 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith. And he says, verse 6, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor at the appearing of Jesus Christ. So God says, when your faith is tried, to me it's more precious than gold. It's a precious thing when I try your faith, because it delivers you. And he says, verse 8, whom having not seen, ye love, and though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Do you remember when he said to Thomas, Thomas, blessed are you because you've seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, why would one be more blessed for having not seen and believed? Because. The thing that was worked in Thomas's soul. Remember Thomas was a doubter. He said I won't believe until I place my hands in his side. And when Thomas saw Christ and got his visible proof. It didn't do in his soul. What it does in ours. When we believe without seeing. It didn't create the patience. What it said to Thomas was when you have doubts. Just see something. But when we have doubts. And we believe. And the spirit of God comes and brings assurance. Then we won't need signs the next time. And that faith becomes very precious to God. Because that faith flatters God. That faith that sees not and still believes glorifies God. That faith honors God. That is the faith of a child. Who when kids stand around him jeering saying your daddy will not take you fishing Saturday And he says, yes, he will, because he said he would. And that faith glorifies the father because the child believes. And God is glorified when we believe without the evidence. When the only evidence is the faith itself he's placed within us. When the only substance is the promise of God and there's no other substance. Amen. Boy, that's good. Second Peter one, three through nine. According as his divine power. This is good. This is all this stuff together. According as his divine power. So that's what I want. I need divine power to overcome sin. Has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the power, the divine power of God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness? Christian counselors don't believe that. Christian counselors believe that they have something God has not given you. And that through walking you through your problem or discovering the root of your sin, that somehow you'll work it out or work through it. They do not believe that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and death. Godliness. You see, you say, oh, he's given us everything that pertains to godliness, but there's a few things here in life that just not really included. God addresses your spiritual needs, I address your physical needs. He said he gives us all things that pertain unto life. All of life and godliness. Folks, this is not believed today. Do we believe it? Do you believe it? Let's go on. You will. I'm not gonna make you believe something that God hadn't put in your heart. God will put this in your heart through the word. Has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Now how do we get it? Through knowing him. Through knowing the Lord Jesus. Just know him, love him, worship him. And he begins to flow through you in this reality. Hath called us to glory and virtue. Whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises. Now you remember all the promises? I started to include that in the four words. Faith, hope, trial, and patience. I started to put promises first, but I think it was included in the faith part. But you see promises appearing over and over again. He said, hath given us exceeding great and precious promises. That's God speaking that by these promises you might be partakers of the divine nature. In other words, I partake of the very nature of God through God's promises. Let me say this to you. Theology is wrong. You did not receive the nature of God when you got saved. You did not. You're still a human being. But you partake in part, a little here, a little there, of the nature, the divine nature through laying hold of the promises one by one. For instance, in the divine nature, Jesus was not impatient. As modern man speaks of patience. He didn't have a temperament that was hasty and curt. As we do. So we need that. And that comes about as we lay hold of the promises of God. That we are dead to sin. Alive unto God and free. And God changes the expression of our temperament. God changes the manifestation. Because why? Because the old man is dead. And the nature of God flows through us. By the Holy Spirit, not something we make to happen, something that comes naturally without religion, without law, without effort. Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. And besides all this, besides all this, give diligence to add to your faith. Going to add something to your faith? What do you add? Virtue. And to virtue, you add knowledge. And to knowledge, add temperance. And to temperance, patience. Patience. And to patience, godliness. Comes in that order. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. If these things be in you and abound, they make you shall never be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind. And what? What is his problem? What is his problem if he lacks these things? He hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. That sounds like old Methodist and Baptist preaching to me. In other words, What this Christian has forgotten that causes him not to have all of these things is he just forgot he got saved. Now, that's simplistic. He just forgot that he's washed in the blood of the lamb. He just forgot that he's got the cleansing power. He just forgot the precious name of Jesus. He just forgot that the showers of blessings, oh, that the day they might fall. He just forgot the simple fact that the Lord is his and he's the Lord. That's what he forgot. And he needs to be reminded. I went to a church several times one time where they said, we need to go beyond that. We need to go to deeper things. We went deep, folks. It was dark. (laughs) I'll tell you what. I don't have any problem with these preachers who just preach Jesus every Sunday like I never heard it before at all. Just preach it again. I love to tell the story to those who know it best. Seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Don't bother me any. Preach it to me. Tell me about how he walked up Calvary Hill. Tell me about sin being laid upon him. Tell me about how he prayed for us. Tell me about how he died, buried, and raised again. Tell me about Mary seeing him and doubting Thomas. Tell me about the spirit descend on the day of Pentecost. Just tell me the story again and you'll sanctify me. Through the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't take me to deep things. Don't take me to principles. Just take me to Jesus. And if I go down in a valley then into something deep. I'll know it's a trial and a testing of my faith. Trying to get me to trust psychology and Christian counselors. Instead of the blood and the word and the promise of God. All right. This our last passage Romans 5 1 through 10. Therefore being justified by faith. This word started being justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith. The faith is ongoing into his grace. The faith justified us and the faith gives us access into his grace. Wherein we stand. We stand in his presence, in his grace and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is, I have an expectation of being covered with the glory. I have an expectation of sharing the glory. I have an expectation of walking in the glory. I have an expectation of being filled with nothing but the glory of God. That's my hope. And I stand in that by faith. And look what he says, verse 3. And not only so, not only so that I have peace with God, that I have access by faith and rejoice in hope. Not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Oh, no. You went off to such a good start there, Paul. You're telling me to glory now in trials and testings and tribulations. Also knowing that tribulation worketh patience. There it is. Tribulation worketh patience. And patience works experience. And experience works hope. See them all there together? That's the process that God's taking you through. And hope maketh not ashamed. Now, by not ashamed, he's not just talking about an emotion you have of being ashamed of Christ. Isn't that what he's saying? What he's saying is that you will not be ashamed of the results. You will not be disappointed at the results of this. Hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. Do you notice the consolation here? The consolation is not that in the tribulation we'll be delivered. The consolation is not that in the trials or the scourgings or the stonings that we will have a miracle or in the sickness we'll be healed. That's not the consolation. The consolation is that we'll not be ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost. That's the consolation. The consolation is that we obtain a good report. The consolation is that we are brought back into the presence of God in a walk of faith that says... No matter what befall me, though he slay me, yet will I praise him. So Job had faith. That's why God put Job through that. You see, not only did the devil learn something, but Job learned something. And we learned something in Job's patience. What was his patience? To not follow his wife's advice when she said, curse God and die. Job said, I will not curse God and die. I'll praise him. And so... Job's patience kept him in the faith, trusting God. That was his patience unto the end. So how are you going to respond? Are you going to believe God come into his presence and into the faith and let the faith stir up a hope and let the hope work an experience with temptations and the love of God be shed abroad in your heart and hang on to that hope firm unto the end, knowing that. That we have a better promise, as he said, a better promise beyond this life. Something more than healing for the body. Something more than financial prosperity. Something more than our body being saved from sickness or hunger or some other thing.